Hello, and welcome to the OnTech Protective Intelligence Podcast. I'm Fred Burton, the Executive Director of the OnTech Center for Protective Intelligence. During my years as a counterterrorism agent with the U.S. State Department and time spent as a physical security expert in the private sector, I've seen it all and met many fascinating people along the way. This podcast series explores the riveting world of protective intelligence through conversations with leaders in the security field. I'm Fred Bergen, and now on to the podcast. Hi, I'm Fred Burton here today with Louis Sage Passant. Louis is a doctoral researcher at UK's Loughborough University, focusing on the history, structure, capabilities, and ethics of intelligence in the private sector. Lewis currently works for a leading U.S. technology company, Salesforce, as their global strategic intelligence manager. He is also the founder and co-editor of EncyclopediaGeopolitics.com and works with multiple cross-industry intelligence sharing groups, including the Association of International Risk Intelligence Professionals and the EMEA Analyst Roundtable. Prior, Lewis worked in intelligence, security, and crisis management in Hong Kong, in the Middle East, in the investment banking and oil and gas industries. Lewis, welcome to the Ontic Protective Intelligence Podcast. Thanks for having me, Fred. Happy to be here. Lewis, you are an exciting role in strategic intelligence. How is strategic intelligence being utilized today by multinational corporations? That's a, a really important question. And this is something I've been trying to address through some of my research. And, and largely what I found is the answer is not as much as it should be. It's something that I think a lot of companies would like to do. I think it's something a lot of companies say they're doing. There's a lot of data out there suggesting CEOs and CSOs are, are very, very worried about geopolitical developments, about strategic issues, creating uncertainty in the world around them. But through my research, I, I went out and I interviewed uh, just over 50 uh, sorry 60 practitioners across 50 different major companies and what i found is teams are largely still very focused on tactical intelligence issues which are of course extremely important they're, they're life and death important generally as as you well know uh, dealing with direct physical threats to the company and as a result the kind of you could call it the tyranny of the urgent the ad hoc bias means that a lot of these companies don't really get the time to develop strategic products and when they're dealing with geopolitical issues, they're generally constrained in, in not being able to engage with them from an intelligence perspective until they're already at their doorstep, until these issues are really looming large and, and, and about to present that direct tactical threat to them. So it's something that I think needs to be a little bit more developed across the industry. Um, it's something I think some teams are doing. I think we at Salesforce have have really been trying to lead the way there. I think our CSO, Keith White, and uh, our VP of uh, intelligence uh, response and, and operational issues, Mohammed Fraser Rahim, have, have been really groundbreaking in trying to bring in this this concept of uh, strategic intelligence as a separate entity within the company, and it's it's already proving very very valuable to us. But like I say, there's there's a lot of companies that I think are still looking and trying to figure out how they go about setting something like this up. So to answer your question, it's something that I think is important, but we're probably not doing enough of it. Yeah, that's very interesting. And uh, as you and I have chatted over uh, many, many months in this space, uh, these are the kinds of issues that really capture the attention of the C-suite, such as uh, the events that's unfolding 
in the Ukraine. Absolutely. And I think we've seen these waves of development come as a result of these issues. I, I think very few companies just wake up one day and say, hey, I'd like to have an intelligence team. And then they certainly don't wake up and say, I'd like to have a strategic intelligence team, at least not in the kind of security sense that we know it. What tends to happen is a crisis comes along, it, it catches the company completely off guard. And while they're on the back foot, they say, hey, it would have been really nice to know about this in advance. And I think we're seeing, you know, this is a field that's been around for a long time. You know, in my research, I go back into the history of it, and you can find roots of of, of private sector intelligence going back to uh, very ancient times. But it's something that really, in the last decade or so, has started to to expand to the point where you could say probably most companies are doing intelligence now. And I think it's only in the last two three years that you're really seeing that explosion in, in companies that are, uh, and as you say, C suites that are saying we we need to be doing more of this. I think the pandemic was a big driver of that. I think it was such an insert, uncertain environment that C-suites themselves were, were being forced to wrestle with these big decisions, something that you know, several, several years ago, a crisis would have been delegated down to the CSO level. A, a CEO didn't need to know about a terror attack. It's a big deal. It's an important issue, but it's something that isn't necessarily going to be globally business stopping. But the pandemic was, and as a result, C-suites are forced to reckon with the uncertainty in the world and, and seek answers. And that's where intelligence has stepped in to help. I think following that, we saw the, the civil unrest of, of last summer. And you know that's something that started in the US, but then very quickly spread globally. And that's something that I think unnerved a lot of companies because they were finding themselves in this, in this very uncertain environment, a very wide-ranging protests that historically have happened in one or two cities globally, but suddenly they were happening everywhere at the same time. And then finally, as you say, the war in Ukraine has come along and really cemented that uncertainty, cemented this idea that, that business can be upended and disrupted very quickly, and you need to be able to see that coming. Lewis, uh, I know that you're a student of intelligence history, and as you look at uh, the role of strategic intelligence helping businesses, how do you look out over the horizon and anticipate risk? That's a great question. I think the most important thing is you've got to understand the business. I think too many of us have a habit of coming out of the military or the intelligence services joining the the private sector world and and bringing that that mindset of of kind of the military way of doing intelligence with us and not quite realizing we're we're in a very different landscape a lot of the methodology is is helpful a lot of our experiences are certainly going to be very helpful in doing this work but we're doing it for an audience that is very it's very naive to intelligence most business practitioners have not been on the receiving end of intelligence in the way that most government practitioners have and that's something where you know, I think my my leadership at Salesforce has been very good at recognizing that that it, you know traditionally intelligence and security can be seen as a cost center for business. And Keith and Mohammed have been very forward footed of going out and finding ways we can support the wider business and how we can shift our way of doing intelligence to not just serve the security team but also serve the wider money making parts of the business so they can go out and orient themselves strategically. So I think that's a really important part of it, learning to speak the language of, of business. And I think it's something that um, really the education piece in the in the sector is probably missing on, because I think so many of us are relying on those past lives in, in government intelligence that we're not necessarily uh, we're not necessarily familiar enough to speak the language of business yet. So, like I say, taking time to learn the business, to orient yourself and understand what does this really mean for us? Am I reporting this thing because it's simply geopolitically interesting or does it actually impact the business? Is it something that's going to change the way we operate that we need to know about? 
And from a business perspective, or at least business risk or business continuity perspective, I would imagine that uh, the strategic intelligence scope or your remit crosses many different business lines. Absolutely. And we, what we found is that while we do serve intelligence products to our internal global safety and security team, the biggest part of our audience is external across the entire business. We do a weekly brief to the the top, uh, to, it's about 2,000 executives in the company globally, and that briefs them on, here are the top line issues you need to know about. You know, Here's why they're relevant to the company. Think about these things as you're going about whatever it is your particular business unit does. And we've gotten some great feedback on that because these are people who typically their main feeds of what you or I would know as intelligence is just the news media. And that doesn't put it through the lens of what does it mean for our company? How do we understand and navigate these issues? And like I said earlier, is it just geopolitically interesting? Is that why that's getting so much attention in the media? Or is this actually important to us? Is it is it relevant to us? Is it going to impact our business? And being able to pass out those two very different things, I think, is quite important. Um, so I think that side of it is tremendously important. Well, that's amazing that uh, you have that degree of audience, uh, which really shows not only the value add, but a firm understanding of how the business is operating around the world to be able to shape that analysis for the recipient, much like uh, here in the United States, uh, the CIA does for the presidential daily brief as an example. I think it's important. Like I say, it's something we're we're still learning in a lot of ways. You know, regularly we'll have meetings and discover new parts of the business that that you know I've been here three years now. I I wasn't aware existed. They didn't know we existed. In a big company, I think that's kind of inevitable. Um, you know, I think our leadership in in the global safety and security team has done a really tremendous effort of of going out and finding these customers, finding people who who need intelligence, they need guidance on these issues, and saying to them, you know, hey, we don't just do security; we do security and so many other technical. We have so many other areas of technical expertise that that people really value. So I think that's that's been really helpful for us. And then reaching out to the company's leadership as well, and and helping to guide them, helping them to uh, you know prepare prepare themselves to deal with geopolitical issues in a more strategic way and help navigate those issues rather than just seeing them as fires to be fought. We'll get back to the conversation in just a moment. But first, I wanted to tell you a little about Ontech's Center for Protective Intelligence. In the world of protective intelligence, we know that gathering and sharing information is crucial. This is why we created the Ontech Center for Protective Intelligence. We're regularly sharing strategies and best practices, insights learned from current and historical trends, as well as lessons learned from physical security experts like you. To find blogs, podcasts, webinars, white papers, and more, check out the center by visiting ontic.co slash center. That's ontic.co slash center. Lewis, I'd like to shift gears a little bit and uh, have you explain your doctoral research and what can we anticipate with that, or at least what can you tell us about what's coming on the horizon predicated on what you've been looking at? So I think the from my research, I'm really seeing the future is is looking bright for the sector. Every company is now either building an intelligence team or if they've got an intelligence team, they're growing it. And companies are starting to really think very 
long and hard about how they use intelligence. And I think that's what's leading to the development of, of teams like mine, um, you know, where our CSO, Keith White, has come along and said, okay, we, we're doing the tactical intelligence. That's tremendously important from security and safety perspective, but how can we better serve the business? And I think more and more companies are starting to have those conversations. So my research overall is it started out, I wanted to look at who's doing intelligence better, the public or the private sector. And I went to my university and I proposed this research and their response was kind of like, that's tremendously interesting, but what are you talking about when you say private sector intelligence? Do you mean government contractors? And as I started diving into the literature, I, I found that perception of the word, of the phrase private sector intelligence more and more, that whenever it comes up in the academic literature, people either think you're, they're either talking about government's intelligence contracting or things like corporate espionage. What you or I do is is relatively unknown to them. So I then realized that I had to, before getting into who's doing it best, I had to actually explain what this thing is. So that's what my thesis has kind of become. It's it's this argument that intelligence is not just happening within governments, which especially in UK academia, there's a, a bit of a, a notion that it's only really intelligence if it's happening secretly and happening within government. So my thesis is exploring how the private sector does intelligence. So it looks at the history of it, um, and it tries to dispel this notion that this is a field that emerged after 9-11. And you can go back to the, the Pinkertons, the East India Company. You can even go back to, to the Venetian merchants and find examples of privatized intelligence operations. And I explore that in, in really, unfortunately, not enough detail. It's very difficult to find historical data around our field, because unlike government intelligence, Private intelligence doesn't have a declassification date. After 30 years, it doesn't get released publicly. So it becomes very, very difficult to find examples of, of intelligence out there. But there are clues if you know where to look. Then I take a look at the contemporary sector and I look at the intelligence cycle and how the private sector is doing the intelligence cycle at its various stages. And generally, my findings there are that there's no one model. Every company is doing it completely differently. And that comes back to what I was saying earlier, that there's there's no standardized form of intelligence. People bring that baggage with them from their previous life in other companies or in government service. And as a result, it's it's pretty messy, but companies are figuring out some really creative ways to do this. Then I take a look at uh, some kind of case studies. So I look at things like protective intelligence. I look at uh, strategic intelligence. I even look at some of the very specialized risk intelligence forms that are out there. Um, you know, Some of the movie studios have people in the intelligence space whose whole job is to read scripts and look for ideas of geopolitical risk, um, You know, issues that could, provide, uh, could prove uh, controversial. So some really interesting jobs out there. And I examine this. And then finally, I look at where the field has potentially gotten into more controversial territory. So I look at activist intelligence and the idea and the history of uh, surveilling activist groups, be it uh, infiltrating labor unions in the Pinkerton era through to the modern versions of it. And unfortunately, it looks like it does still go on, you know, the surveillance of activist groups, environmentalist groups uh, by energy companies and other companies like that, uh, as well as the suppression of labor rights movements and, and things like that. And this is an area that I really try and pass out how the field has changed, but in many ways stayed very similar over its history, that we're still doing a lot of this uh, this work in, in different companies. And the way it's being done hasn't really changed that much. Social media has come along and introduced some new technologies, but, but largely the ethics around activist intelligence are pretty underdeveloped and unchanged. And that's something that 
I'm really keen to see shift in our industry. To come back to my earlier comment about the lack of um, you know, declassification in our field, most of the historical data I find is when there's been a scandal or a leak or something like that. And most of those scandals and leaks tend to come from people doing inappropriate types of intelligence. And activist intelligence can often stray into that world. So a lot of my work is looking at the ethics of it and of what types of intelligence really should we be doing and how far should we be going. And that's something I've been really comfortable with at Salesforce. Our leadership is, is very focused on ethics and doing things the right way. They've given me a, a very strong support in writing a kind of ethical guidebook for the way we would do intelligence to say, you know, here are the clear red lines of what you can and can't do. So my, my thesis kind of it ends up in in looking at that world and saying, you know, is this is this really intelligence? And if it is, should we be thinking more about the ethics of it? Because as we've seen recently with things like the Pegasus spyware scandal, the capabilities of private sector intelligence are now starting to surpass that of governments. And if we don't have a good ethical framework surrounding that, we could be in quite dangerous ground. Lewis, that's simply fascinating. Now, what has surprised you in the course of... Uh your dissertation research? I think more than anything, it's the humbling experience of doing a thesis. You know, I've, I've worked in intelligence for a, over a decade now. I took a kind of three-year interlude to work in a security operations role that still had a lot of intelligence feeds. And as a result, I went into this thesis really thinking I knew a lot about intelligence. And as I started diving into the literature, within probably a month of starting that research, I was completely humbled. I realized I know absolutely nothing about intelligence. It's such an enormous topic and there's so much out there. And having gone out there now and spoken to you know, dozens of practitioners across all sorts of different industries in all sorts of different countries and companies, what I'm learning is that there are so many different diverse perspectives of intelligence that it's impossible to know it all. It's impossible to really consider yourself an expert in this field because there's, it's just so big. There's so much out there. So I think that to me has been the thing that surprised me more than anything is really learning how little I know about a field that I, I actually thought I knew quite well. Lewis, as you look over the horizon and you think about our industry over the next, let's say, 10 years from now, where will intelligence or strategic intelligence be I think that's the big question right now. I think it's certainly optimistic. I think it's certainly growing. Um, you know, I'm seeing more and more companies investing in this. I'm getting regular questions from CSOs and uh, people within the intelligence space who are, you know, they've maybe read a piece of research by myself or uh, Dr. Maria Robson Morrow at Harvard or Angela Lewis, uh, Dr. Angela Lewis, as of last week at Pepperdine University, who are researching this field, and. They, it's piqued their interest. They reach out and they say, hey, you know, hey, hey, how do I go about building one of these teams? And that's been really gratifying to see that level of, of growth in the field and interest in the field. So I think there's certainly growth there. I think the way intelligence is being done is starting to subtly shift. I think the nature of the threats are now getting so big that companies are realizing they have to delineate between tactical intelligence and, and strategic intelligence. Both of them are, are, are equally important, tactical intelligence in particular, because like I say, it's literally life and death. And that's too important to get derailed by the strategic work and then vice versa. The strategic work takes too much time. It's happening at too slow a pace to be able to deal with the kind of ad hoc bias nature of, of tactical intelligence. So I think more companies are heading in that direction. They're starting to delineate them, create distinct functions to do this kind of work. And I think that's a really good thing for the industry. I think it's raising the profile of not just intelligence teams, but corporate security organizations in, in general, because they're showing value 
both to security, but also to the broader business. They're not being seen as a cost center anymore. They're being seen as something that has real business value, real business impact beyond the important work of keeping people safe. Well, Lewis, I've been in this business a long time, uh, and uh, I firmly believe uh, the kind of research that you are doing and Maria and Angela is the future of our industry. Is there anything else that I haven't asked you that you would like to say? I think I think probably the most important question that we're we're not asking ourselves in the field is is the point I alluded to earlier about the ethical piece. There aren't many rules govern, governing intelligence, and I'm yet to meet a company that has set up or an individual that set up an intelligence team with negative intentions. Everyone sets these teams up with the same goal in mind: let's keep people safe. And then some teams do find themselves getting off the track a little bit and find themselves in quite dangerous territory. And I think to fight that, we need to have clearer ethical rules. We need to have clearer guidance around what is the right and wrong way to do intelligence. You know, there are industry organizations out there like uh, ARIP, the Association of Risk Intelligence Professionals, that's done a tremendous job at trying to professionalize this field. Dr. Maria Robson-Morrow, her work is really looking at that professionalization journey of the field. But all of these groups and people are coming to the same conclusion that we're very early on that journey. We're still quite disorganized. It's a very nascent field. So it's tremendously important we get it right as early as possible to avoid finding ourselves on the wrong side of ethics and and where the industry should be. So I think we need to take a better look at how to do intelligence properly, how to get the most out of it by doing it in an ethical way, but also doing it in a very strategic, mindful way that can best serve the business without stepping over that line of of impropriety uh, and drawing scandals to the business. Because if you go down that route, you're not going to learn much from an intelligence perspective that I think is that useful. But what you are doing is exposing the business to tremendous reputational risk. Um, So it's really important to stay on the good side of ethics, I think. Well, Lewis, we thank you for being on the Ontic Protective Intelligence podcast today. Thanks very much for having me, Fred. It's uh, always an honor to talk to you. This episode was brought to you by the Ontic Center for Protective Intelligence. Learn more at ontic.co slash center. Again, that's ontic.co slash center. It was produced by AJ McKeon. Our music is a track called Mate Verde Ride and was written by Brian Bristow and performed by Smokin' Novus. Check them out on Spotify. Please remember to rate and review our podcast on iTunes and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have questions, we'd love to hear them. You can reach us at podcast at ontic.ai or visit ontic.co slash center for more information. I'm Fred Burton. Thanks for listening.